The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Let's give attention to God's Word here from Psalm 142. We're told it's a masculine of David when he was in the cave of prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully for me. Let me pray again for us. Father, as we consider this your word, help us not only to see David's trouble and where he found solace and hope, but we also pray that we would see where Jesus went through this as well and that this was his psalm. And may it also be ours. And may you lift us up grow our faith and our hope in the midst of trouble. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think Psalm 142 gets the press it deserves. Uh, When you think of low points in the Psalms, you think of Psalm 88. It gets the press of depression, lament, melancholy spirits. Maybe also Psalm 102 where the psalmist describes himself as a lonely sparrow or as an owl in the desert, you know, just alone. Uh, But in Psalm 142, David is here in exile. He has fled from Saul, who wants to kill him. And the great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, do you remember how the chapter ends in Hebrews 11? It says, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. Well, sometimes in Scripture, we see the saints in some really difficult places, as was mentioned. Joseph finds himself in a pit that is sold for silver, taken down to Egypt, where he soon finds himself falsely accused of attempted adultery, and then he's imprisoned, forgotten. The people of God will later find themselves in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and they begin to cry out to God for God to deliver them. And he hears their cry, and we're told in Exodus 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Well, sometimes God isn't on our timetable in answering our prayers. And you think about that very 
promise there that God heard the people he saw and he knew. But we're told, if we remember in Genesis 15, when God walked between the pieces, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and they'll be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, when you think of answered prayer, do you typically have a 400-year timeline in view? (laughs) Not hardly, right? Sometimes God's timetable is in ours. And sometimes... Things take a long time to work through the system. And I think even the things that we're seeing in our country, as we're still working through some of these race issues that have plagued our nation from the outset, and they still work in them, working their way out, way out of the system. But we can rejoice a few great things happened this past week. If you were reading the news that... Um, we saw that uh, Berkshire Hathaway, the company, paid out $20 million where they acknowledged that redlining was happening in New Jersey. And they have made, made wrong the right and compensated the blacks and Latinos that they withheld loans from. And then the Bruce family in L.A., the Bruce family that didn't have a, a home that was taken from them by the government, and the county restored the beach house property to this black family, and that was celebrated this week. So there are some things that we can celebrate when we see good happening like that. But sometimes things take a long time. And God raised up Moses, if you remember, that was the answer to prayer. And where does Moses find himself early in his life? In a little floating basket, a little ark. And literally, it's the same word. And he's discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh, that's typically not going to be good, by the Nile River, and God's at work. Jeremiah finds himself let down by ropes to the bottom of an empty, muddy cistern. And we're told in Jeremiah 38 that Jeremiah sank in the mud. You just think about that. You can almost feel it and hear it. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in a fiery furnace. Daniel finds himself in the lion's den. Jonah finds himself in the belly of, the, of a whale. Paul says he was shipwrecked in 2 Corinthians 11 three times and was a night and a day adrift at sea. And Jesus was three days in the heart of the earth in a cave as a tomb with a massive heavy stone sealing him in. Martin Luther was at exile in Wartburg Castle. John Calvin got to Geneva by way of fleeing from France, and he's later exiled and kicked out of Geneva. And the Puritans, under the reign of Bloody Mary, when she took over the throne, she burned over 300 Protestants, many of them pastors, during her reign. Some famous ones like Thomas Cramer, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley. And so... There are times we find ourselves in difficult situations. And I think for us, I think we've kind of just stuffed what happened the past two years. I just want to kind of go go back and think about what's happened and what we've been through as a body of Christ is that this pandemic came and there all of a sudden was this great fear 
that swept over the, all of the world. In a matter of weeks, we found ourselves in various forms of quarantine and lockdown. Schools, churches, businesses, restaurants, everything closed their doors. The economy reeled. And everything that made for a joyful, normal life was taken from us. And wasn't just for a moment, but was withheld for months and months and months. And then you're not only living under this fear of getting this disease, but you're bombarded with all of the negativity and you're in this constant state of uncertainty and a moving target of change with no clear view of the finish line. And then everybody is behind a mask and you're not even seeing the humanity and people's faces and the expressions. And for people like me with a hearing loss in both ears, sometimes it was very exquisitely painful, like trying to talk one time to a guy at the bank with my mom, and he has a very thick accent, which I struggle with, but then he's behind glass, and he's with a mask on, and he's not speaking very loud. I mean, I couldn't hear, a, I mean, I just finally had to get help, like, we're going to have to get somebody else, because I can't hear anything <laughs> that you're saying. Well, what began, and it started off with this, you know, mass quarantine, vaccine, school closures, on and on. But as the journalist Ed Young, who writes for The Atlantic, and he was actually a Pulitzer Prize winner for his reporting as coverage of the pandemic, this is what he said. He said, millions have endured a year of grief, anxiety, isolation, rolling trauma, and some lost People, we all know somebody that died during this pandemic. And he says, some will recover uneventfully, but for others, the quiet moments after adrenaline fades and normalcy resumes may be unexpectedly punishing. When they finally get a chance to exhale, their breaths may emerge as sighs. People put their heads down and do what they have to do, but suddenly there's an opening and all those feelings come up. And as Laura von Dernut Lipsky, there's a name for you, she's the director of the Trauma Stewardship Institute, she said, as hard as the initial trauma is, it's the aftermath that destroys people. And so right now, we're kind of in this sort of global denial about the actual cost of the hard years, which aren't over yet. And we just want to get past it all, we want to get back to a normal life, and as one writer has put it, we haven't yet paid the psychological bill for all we've been through. We would never tell a survivor of abuse that the trauma must be over now that the abuse has stopped. And yet that mentality is at play in our collective denial of the trauma we've been through. We need to be kinder to our souls than that. Denial heals nothing. And this writer says, I'm more concerned about what's coming than what lies behind. And so that's why we need psalms like Psalm 142. They're as real as real gets. Here David was anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel. And he's somewhere probably as a, a teenager, probably 15, 16 years old. He's got all these other brothers, but they all get picked. But there's one young one, and, you know, he gets picked. And then he, but he won't strike the Lord's anointed. And he fights this... Goliath, this giant, and after he fights him, he's recruited into Saul's army, becomes a warrior. But Saul becomes very jealous of him because he hears the pop song sung by the women. 
And the women are singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And it's a nice little ditty. And Saul hears it and, wait a minute. I, I'm, not, I'm not on the good end of this. And from that day on, he eyed to kill David. And at one point, it's estimated he had 30,000 people out to kill him. And so David and Jonathan embrace at one point, and they weep in the woods when David has fled, and it's confirmed that, yes, my dad wants to kill you. And they weep, and David flees for his life as a fugitive. He flees to Nob, to Abimelech the priest, and he, and, and he gives David Goliath's sword. And then David fled to Gath, and that should bring back some... <laughs> Gath's not the great place to hide out because that's where, Saul, or that's where Goliath grew up. That was Goliath's hometown. And here David is hiding there, and they too had heard the pop song that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And they didn't like it either. And David began to be much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, and he pretended to be insane so that Achish, Achish would get rid of him like a hot rock. And David now escapes to the cave of Adullam. In 1 Samuel 22, 1. And it's before his family and his brothers come to him that he pens this psalm. He is lonely, weary, spent. And it is at this low point in his life that he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And on the one hand, you can see, read this psalm and you can see all these troubling circumstances, depression, despair. Yet, David is buoyed up by the Lord. And we see faith and hope budding even in this dark time. David prays, David cries, and his despair is going to ultimately turn to hope as the psalm ends. But we see David crying out. There's three times he's crying in the psalm. Do you see that? Verse 1, I cry to the Lord. Verse 5, I cry to the Lord. Verse 6, attend to my cry. And he cries out with my voice, with my voice twice in verse 1. This is not a silent prayer. This is an audible out loud prayer. That's how often the saints pray to God is out loud. With my voice, he's pleading with the Lord. These aren't silent prayers. These are audible cries. And he's saying that I put out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him, literally to his face, to his face. He's crying out to the Lord. He's telling his troubles to God. And that's what the people of God do in the Bible. And as we experience trouble, difficulties, and we get discouraged, despondent, circumstantially. I knew when my mom called me this morning, it was not going to be good news. Why would she be calling me right before Sunday school to tell me that my aunt's in respiratory arrest and they're bringing the family in? And that's discouraging because she's a matriarch of our family. But she loves Jesus and she's going home to glory. And so though it is difficult, man, what if we didn't have hope? We will, I will see her again. <laughs> and she will be reunited with her parents and with my dad. This is my dad's sister. And so there are difficult things that we face. And we can, we can see things that, that hurt. And we cry audibly to God in prayer. And we see David tells God his trouble. 
And yet he's telling him the real truth. He tells him, my spirit faints within him. Do you see that in verse 3? Translation, he's overwhelmed. He's weary. He's exhausted. His spirit is faint. His faint. He's being hunted. And they've hidden a trap for him to catch him. And he's, he is crying out in verse 6. He says he's been brought very low. This is a low moment of his life. He knows that his persecutors, that's not a good translation, better translation is my, his pursuers. The pursuers are too strong for him. He doesn't have the strength in himself to handle this. He's got inadequate resources, inadequate abilities, and he's pleading with God to bring me out of prison. In verse 7, as the confines of the cave are described to David as a prison cell, in which he is hemmed in all around. But there, wait, there's more. <laughs> we skipped over verse 4. The low tide, the lowest tide, I think, one of the, the low verses of the Bible, and there's a few of them. But this is one in verse 4, is it not? Look to the right and see. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Hence the sermon title, When Nobody Notices and Nobody Cares. That's where David was. He's cut off from his family. He's cut off from his friends. He's being pursued by enemies, and he's hiding in a cave. I wonder, is that something that we can make audible? Like, what if that gets confessed in the small group? Nobody notices, nobody cares. Like, like, you read that and you're like, man, that is raw. No refuge remain, no one cares for my soul, nobody notices. Like, what would happen if that gets unearthed? I would hope that it could. I can remember one time years ago where somebody new came to a men's study and he just unzipped and just laid his burden out there. I mean, it was as raw as raw gets. You know, I've cheated on my wife. I'm, you know, on the brink of divorce. I mean, he just laid out like, boom, boom. it was like, you know, four aces of terrible things. And we didn't, know, we didn't know what to do. We didn't handle it well. And he never saw him again. Because we weren't able to handle it. We need to be able to take this on as a, as a church because when we think of four, Ephesians 4.29, I think we tend to think of it negatively rather than positively. Do you remember Ephesians 4.29? The negative is don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouths. And literally, it's don't let anything rotten or harmful. Don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouths. But it's a contrast. But only such as, good, as is good as is helpful, contrast to harmful, for building up, as fits the occasion or what is necessary, in order that, in a clause, for the purpose of that what? That it would give grace. Give grace to those who hear. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have friends. That's why we have activities of fellowship. To give grace. How do we give grace to one another? What do we need this morning from our friends? We need grace. We need friendships are meant to give grace. Marriages are meant to give grace. Parents are meant to give grace. 
Teachers are meant to give grace. Parents are meant to give grace. Children are meant to give grace. And often we don't get grace. We get something else. But we are told now as the body, right? Don't say things that are harmful. Say things that are helpful that it would give grace. Give grace. Recently, I was just talking to a pastor this week and he was telling me that he just said, man, my my elders are really hurting. And he said, when we come together for elder meetings, he said, man, they're just kind of just opening up. And, and, and he was kind of, he said, I don't really know what to tell them. <laughs> I said, man, praise God, they're opening up. They're able to share with each other their burdens. And you're able to pray for each other. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. David knows where to turn. He's disappointed that he doesn't have his friends. He doesn't have his Jonathan. He doesn't have his Finns. But they're going to come. In 1 Samuel 22, they come, and it actually it says 400 people come to him. All those discontented in soul. He ends up with a pretty bad lot of people that have had hard stuff happen in life. They become his warriors, and his brothers are going to come down to him. They are going to help him. But David knows where to turn here in the midst of this. You know, so he's, he, he's in despair but yet he still has hope. And what do we see is that David directionally is going the right direction with his troubles. He isn't looking to self-medicate. He isn't looking to escape. He isn't being stoic and saying this is, you know. He's saying, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. You know my way. Isn't that great? Verse 3, he knows, God knows. David knows that God knows his suffering, his hardship, and though he's at the end of his rope, He knows where to turn. He turns to the Lord and he cries to the Lord and he says, verse 5, you are my refuge, my portion and the land of the living. Even though he's just said, no refuge remains for me. Yet he has a refuge. You're my refuge. His faith and hope are upwards rather than downwards and inwards. He clings to the Lord and sees the Lord as his portion. He's enough. And though the pursuers and the enemies are too strong for him, he turns to God and he prays in faith, bring me out of this prison that I may give thanks to your name. He wants God to get the glory in his deliverance. Bring me out of this so I can praise you and thank you all the more. And there is something about when we get COVID, I'm just curious, who's had COVID? I'm not going to ask who has not. Who has had COVID in the church? I mean... There's a few of you that haven't raised your hands, but I mean, most of us have had it now. And there is a sense when you have it that you feel kind of like in prison because you're in, you're in COVID prison. I mean, you're in quarantine for those five days and, you're, and then your brain isn't, if you're like me, I couldn't really concentrate very well, like try to recall things or, you know, Bruce was telling me, you know, trying to recall the scriptures that he's memorized, like, man, you know, things just, you know, things aren't working at like 100%. It's not fun. It's not a fun. And so here David is, and he's saying, bring me out of this that I can praise you all the more. And lastly, he writes, that the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully for me. Now, he may be looking forward to his friendships and relationships being restored. Instead of being surrounded by enemies, he wants to be surrounded by the righteous, the people of God. And he's looking forward to that. But the Hebrew word here, interestingly, for surround is often translated crown. 
So you could, you could just as well translate this, the righteous will crown me. And I actually think that that might be a better translation because he was anointed the king of Israel and here he is 15, 16 years old. He doesn't get the crown until he's 30. So he's penning this sometime in his 20s. And he's waiting for when this is finally going to happen. But he won't strike the Lord's anointed. He's just waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he's the anointed king of Israel. But he's on the run. But by faith, he's looking forward to when this will happen. You will deal bountifully with me. You've made this promise. You've anointed me. The righteous will crown me. It will happen. Now that we've looked through with the telephoto lens and you telephotoed on David. Now let's take the telephoto lens off and put the wide-angle lens on, and now let's look at this psalm from a different perspective. Now look at this as Jesus' psalm. David wasn't the only king who was on the run. He wasn't the only king who, before he became a king, was exiled and had to run away from another king who's trying to kill him. Right? The wise men came from the east, haven't seen the star. The wise men came to Jerusalem. They said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose, and we've come to worship. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. They know if, if Herod's troubled, we're in trouble. And we're all troubled. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them that the time, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. Yeah, right. He's going to go and slaughter all the children, two years old or under. Jesus is in exile for part of his life and for seasons of his public ministry because he has people that want to kill him. And so much of the Gospels is you know, let's wait until the time is right, but they're conspiring to kill him. And Jesus, too, learned how to pray and cry out audibly with his voice. We're told in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. Is that how you think of Jesus? Do you think of him with loud cries and tears? Jesus knew all about hidden traps, verse 3. He entered the synagogue, Mark 3, and there was a man there with a withered hand, most likely a, pl a plant. They planted him there, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And then when he heals him, it says, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. We're only in chapter 3 of Mark, and they're already conspiring to kill him. And then chapter 12 of Mark, it says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You know, are you a nationalist? Are you for the Romans? Are you, are you for the Jews? Who are you for? trying to trap him. And Jesus knew what it was like to have no one notice and no one care for his soul. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will experience this threefold disappointment from his disciples. We're told in Mark 14, they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter, James, and John. 
And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Imagine one of your close friends tells you that. Very sorrowful even to death. What would you do as a friend? Well, he went a little farther. He fell to the ground and prayed, if it's possible that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed. Saying the same words again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him. They were embarrassed. And he came to them the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. They just flat failed him. Jesus says in Psalm 69, 20, that reproaches have broken my heart. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. So that's earlier in Psalm 69, but we see that those reproaches broke his heart. And he says, I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Jesus had no comfort as his heart is broken. He says in Psalm 22, be not far from me, trouble is near, and there's none to help. You have 107 questions in the Gospel of Mark. It's all about questions. And it just goes back and forth. And half the questions are Jesus' questions, but you have all of these questions. And it starts off with, you know, have you come to torment us? That's the first question. It's the demon saying to Jesus, you know, we know who you are. Have you come to torment us? You know, you know who can forgive sins but God alone? And, you know, on and on you have questions in every chapter. But then you get to the end of the Gospel of Mark and the last couple of questions don't get answered. Are you the king of the Jews? Tell us. He remained silent. And then he's on the cross. And twice God has spoken audibly about this is my son, my beloved son. And Jesus cries out with a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. No answer. After 106, 105 questions that have been asked, no answer. There's one last question in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is in the cave, and the ladies come, and they say, who's going to roll away the stone for us? Who's going to roll away the stone? <laughs> who's going to roll away the stone? Jesus was in the cave. He knows the cave. He knew what it was to be cut off. Jesus didn't just suffer along with you. He doesn't just suffer with you. He suffered for you. For you. He knows bitter suffering. He knows the wrath of God. He took it in our place. We're just told in 1 Peter 3.18 that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He suffered for you. The righteous for the unrighteous, that would be us, that he might bring us to God. He has brought our souls to God. Greater man love than no man than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. 
There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together and see it through because you got a friend in me. you got a friend in me, says Randy Newman <laughs> from Toy Story. Well, it couldn't be truer here. And so lastly, now I want you to take off the wide-angle lens and I want you to put the mirror lens on. Put the mirror lens on for a minute. That'd be you. Where are you this morning? Do you feel like you're in prison? You feel cut off? Has the pandemic made you weary? Do you feel faint, lonely? Do you feel like nobody notices? Nobody cares? Do you feel low? We're there sometimes. Let me tell you, and there are times where he says these pursuers are too strong. And you know what? They are in and of yourself. And we're told that we're, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and spiritual authorities. And Jesus tells Peter plainly, Satan demanded to have you. And the you is plural. He demanded to have you. But I prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> he doesn't pray. Satan demanded to have you. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So what do we do as the people of God? We have to remember that God is with us and that greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. And Christ is in us and we are in him. And he promised, I will not leave you as orphans. We are not orphan children. I will come to you. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And Jesus has promised, fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's delighted to do so. We're told at the end of 1 John, we know that everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning, but he who's been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding so we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He's the true God and eternal life. And yet I would also say that often a means of grace in Scripture is that we give grace to one another. You think of some of these verses where in Paul's life where he says, I came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was open for me and the Lord. My spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. You just read over that, keep going. Wait a minute, an open door was for you, able to preach the gospel, but no rest, no Titus, I left. I mean, imagine that in a missionary newsletter, you know, come from one of the missionaries, you know. <laughs> We, we had an open door, it was clear, but we had no rest, and so we left and went to another town because Titus wasn't there. We'd think something was weird, you know. That's Paul. Then he says, even when we came to Macedonia, chapter 7, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only his coming, but also the comfort but with which he comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. You see, God does restore us. Often a means of grace is other saints. We are all fellow saints, we are fellow sinners, and we are fellow sufferers. We all have those three things in common if we're in Christ. 
We're all going to suffer. We're still sinners, and yet we're saints. And so we can encourage each other. I mean, Paul writes at the end of 2 Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, gone to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for ministry. He says, all abandoned me, all deserted me earlier in the book. You see, two are better than one, we're told, in the wisdom literature, right? For they have a good return for their work. For if they, one falls down, his friend can pick him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. And so as we come to the table today, I want us to obviously experience grace from the Lord, but let's remember that we partake of the one loaf together. And we do this together, and we're reminded that the Christian life is something we do together. We don't just run this alone. We need each other. We have to be honest with our burdens and our struggles. And I realize for many of you are thinking, man, you want me to be in a small group right now, and you want me to bear one another's burdens, and I, can, I can't even bear my own burden. It's too great. And yet we need to ask for help from our brothers and sisters. This is not an easy time. And so, rather than shrink back and pull away into another cave, we need to come out and be a part of the body. Let's pray together. Lord, we are a needy people. And we praise you, O oh God, that you are our refuge. We thank you that you come and give life to your people. Lord, we are poor in spirit. You are the God who satisfies. We ask that you would comfort or those who mourn. We ask that you'd be near to us and meet us at your table and remind us all that Christ has suffered for us in order to bring us to God. And we thank you that all of our sins have been paid for and that we have been welcomed to this table. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.